Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, we're back, back at it again. Oh my God, I sound like Alex Cooper. That's got to go. I mean, like, I love her, but, like, it's gotta go. It's, like, copyright infringement. I mean, she's an icon. Like, you know, she's she's taught us how to podcast, really, at the end of the day. That's true. Honestly, she's given us the intro, but, like, that, that, Annie, is the perfect segue into talking about the podcast that we've been on and partnered with recently. We've been on some super awesome podcasts that you guys need to check out. Hit subscribe. Hit subscribe to RSS as well we need to shout out hashtag single podcast super super fun feminist oriented podcast talking about dating so if you want to hear from us and how we handle politics and dating and combining that entire world our episode just dropped so highly recommend give our girl Jeanette at hashtag single podcast a follow as well and then mimosa sisterhood we can't forget because <laughs> I mean, just the name alone is just very, it's warming. It's heartwarming. It's our vibe. Everyone loves a good mimosa. Like, I speak for both of us when I say that. And a good sisterhood. That was probably the more important part of that. And I really, I don't know what that says about me, but I really went for the mimosa part. So. Yeah, I feel like the, like, mimosas really end up making sisterhoods too. Like, it's just such a good title. I mean, think about those brunches you know they bring you closer to your girls it's just the vibe but we also talk about obviously women in politics we talk about roe v wade we talk about you know the division we're seeing in our country and kind of the hope that we have for this new administration so go catch us on mimosa sisterhood and just to like tag team on that if you're ever curious about sort of the backstory of girl in the gov and how we got started check it out and while we're just like pushing all of our press pieces because like 
that's what we do. That's what we're here for. So we also were featured on Entrepreneurista's blog. So another great podcast that we love, which focuses on women in business. And seriously, like they share some serious superstars. But we were interviewed for a little Q&A on their website about our founding and our backstory. So don't forget to check that out as well. I mean, look at us. Just like we're in the press. We're in the press these days, you guys. Look out for us. But Imperfectly Phenomenal Women podcast. I was on like two months ago. I don't remember because time doesn't exist these days. But And then Sam, your new episode on the Imperfectly Phenomenal podcast comes out tomorrow slash today when you're listening to this Wednesday, January 20th, correct? Yes, ma'am, it is. We talk about being bold and reframing the notion of I can't be bold. So her podcast really focuses on reframing sort of the can't to a can and why. So we talk about the concept of being bold, but within the framework of politics, of course. We play a really fun game called Bold versus Bleh. And we run through some of our celebrity politicians, if you will, and rate them as bold or blah and give you some reasoning behind our decisions. So I highly recommend it. And also like freaking fun game. Yeah, I was gonna say like, are you sure you didn't create that game? I know, I was like shocked. I was like, oh my gosh, Lauren and I are kindred spirits. Yeah, Lauren's amazing. So go check out Imperfectly Phenomenal Women. It's an incredible podcast that just highlights amazing women and it's inspiring and just like, makes you believe and not believe but like know that women can do literally anything would you agree is there a spot where i get to give like a little stamp of approval you know what i mean like yeah again bridgerton oh shit that's where i got that it keeps coming back to bridgerton and i just can't the duke can get it but do you want to introduce our guest for this week we're super excited to have Elisa Crespo on, who is running for City Council District 15 in the Bronx for a special election on March 23rd. But without further ado, we will introduce her. So, welcome. So, my name is Elisa Crespo. I was born in the city of New York. I'm running for the New York City Council in the heart of the Bronx in District 15. I'm the first trans woman of color to ever run for public office in the Bronx. I'm the first to ever make it on a ballot in the state of New York. And, you know, I was raised by a single working class mom, someone who, despite her best efforts, had to rely on the social safety net programs, you know, like Section 8 and and food stamps and Medicaid. That was our life. That was many of the people in my family grew up um, with that same story. And so I... In many respects, I'm a a product of the very same public institutions that have helped so many of us, but are still need to be reformed and improved. And we're talking about things like public housing, public transportation, and public schools. My, My background was in education and fighting for public education, particularly in the on the higher education level. I worked for a couple of elected officials in different levels of government, from an intern to a public servant, and most recently served as the Bronx Borough President's Education Liaison and worked uh, closely with students with individualized education plans, students, uh, special education students, District 75 students, uh, which are the most neediest of students in our um, Department of Education. And back in February of last year, I decided, you know, I can do this. I'm going to run for public office. 
you know, I knew that not only was public service my passion, but I knew that it was going to take a new generation of bold progressive leaders to bring real systemic change to our city if we were going to make sure that the city was going to work for all of us. Uh, and so here I am full uh, in the thick of a special election that takes place on March 23rd here in the Bronx and super excited and amped and pumped up. Yeah, I love that. And you said it's a special election. Can you explain a little bit about what that means for listeners who are like, didn't we just have an election? Like, what's a special election? Um, what's going on here? Yeah, <laughs> there's an election happening like, oh, my God, all the time in New York City. So essentially, the current council member for this district has won a seat in Congress and he left a year early. So there's a vacancy now for for this council seat in my community. And whomever wins on the 23rd of March will serve for the rest of the year. And then there will be a regularly scheduled June primary for the person to serve out a full term thereafter. So a special election is uh, usually occurs when someone leaves office before their term is over, or they get expelled, or, you know, God forbid they pass away. Someone needs to fill that seat for the rest of the term. And what is speaking to you about this specific role in this specific seat? And like, do you run against people? How is all this happening right now? Yeah, I mean, there definitely are other candidates running. You know, I've been in the Bronx for 10 years now. And, you know, the Bronx has some of the worst statistics of the city of New York. It's one of the poorest boroughs. It's one of the boroughs with the highest rates of evictions, the highest rates of food insecurity, highest rates of asthma. You know, it, there are 62 counties in the state of New York and the Bronx ranks 62 in terms of health outcomes. The Bronx has the most students in placed in handcuffs. So it's the epicenter of the school to prison pipeline. We also have the highest rate as a borough of maternal mortality just a lot of really, really concerning statistics that have to do with the history of racially concentrated poverty and redlining and environmental racism. So in thinking of that, and, and you know, I, I couldn't just not do something about it, right? I became, just to backtrack, in 2016, we had a very, very tumultuous election in the United States for president. And a lot of young people really became more politically active and engaged and understood that we had to get in the fight for our futures. And I was one of those people who really started to pay attention to politics because of the rise of, of white supremacy, the rise of nationalism, the, the election of Donald Trump was very, very traumatic. And on the other side, I had a, we had rather a candidate by the name of Bernie Sanders who was the polar opposite, the antithesis of Trump, and someone who really was speaking my language and really inspired young people to fight for their future and spoke to the issues that were impacting us, which we'll get into, I think, a little later, one of them being student debt, student loan debt, and the other um, being climate change, which is an issue that folks in our generation, younger people, are going to have to deal with. That's something that's going to fall on our laps. And, and that is why you see a lot of young people really up in arms about making sure we're being aggressive and bold um, about taking 
uh, swift action against climate change. So all of that combined really led me to understand that this was my passion, public service was my passion, and that, you know, this is what I wanted to do. This is a calling that I'm following and it, and, you know, it just feels right. Absolutely. I mean, talk about a lot of motivators. I don't even know which one to start with, but I know even prior to this decision to run that you've worked as an activist as well. So you just want to learn a little bit more about that. Like what have you specifically sort of been involved in and how is that impacting uh, your candidacy right now? Yeah. So I began my organizing and activism as an elected student leader in the City University of New York, which is our public higher education system. And I was, you know, myself and other Black and Latino students were really pushing against the administration at the City University of New York and the Board of Trustees to fully fund CUNY to make sure that it was uh, affordable and accessible to make sure that there were no cuts to it, to make sure that professors weren't being laid off. So that's where I really got my experience in organizing and activism. And that experience brought me to the halls of our state government, to our state capital, and where I was in close proximity to legislators. And that really let me know that this is the kind of work, you know, combined with the other things I mentioned, that I, this is the work that I wanted to do. And so that was where my, my passion for public education began. Obviously, as a trans woman of color, my, my existence, my being is, a, is an everyday act of resistance against, you know, misogynists, transphobia. The status quo, really. The status quo, the patriarchy. And so by definition, you know, once you are an openly trans person, you become sort of this, your lived experience becomes activism in and of itself. That's really well said. Literally captured the perfect sentence. But we will also talk about your platform, of course, which I'm sure has been inspired by this activism. So in looking at this platform ahead of March, what should voters focus on? What are two issues that you are really running on? I think without a doubt, the number one issue in this council district is the lack of good paying jobs, workforce development, economic development. You know, this is a community that has 33% of people with less than a high school education. There are certain neighborhoods in this district where the unemployment rate is as high as 25%. You know, we have always had a pandemic in the Bronx, but COVID-19 has really exacerbated that and shined a light on the underlying inequities that um, existed in the Bronx. And so we really, really wanna fight for jobs, but not just any jobs. We want people in this community to, we wanna create pathways to municipal jobs, city jobs that historically come with family sustaining wages, that have the benefits of organized labor, that have retirement pensions and healthcare, you know, we also are, are very adamant about building a municipal apprenticeship program for young people, for targeted vulnerable populations, people who have historically been marginalized from the private sector job market, making sure um, that we give them skills, labor skills, trade skills, vocational skills that they can take with them and be able to have a, a skill that they can take anywhere with them and have a, a pathway to a, a good middle class job. That's for me how we 
move from generational poverty to towards generational wealth in a community that has historically been plagued with with poverty. I love that idea, an apprenticeship. That's brilliant. It's like, okay, we need you in office right now. We need to get this like rolling. <laughs> well, that was one. The second one is education. The city of New York spends a sizable amount of money on public education for our K through 12 system. And yet we're still failing our students, particularly the ones in the most neediest schools in the most low income communities. So when we talk about preparing young people for a 21st century job market, that looks like building more community schools, which are schools that have on-site wraparound services for both the student and the families, including health centers on site. That looks like implementing and expanding career and technical education programs, STEM programming for all students. That looks like, you know, building work-based learning, right? Which is similar to sort of how apprenticeships work and trade, making sure that, that when, when young people in the Bronx graduate from high school, that they're ready for the job market, that they don't necessarily need to pursue a college education, culturally responsive education in our curriculum, making sure that we're not too happy with punity and punishing black and brown students, right? Ending the, you know, the, the suspensions that historically happen to our, our most vulnerable students. So public education has just always been a passion of mine. And a public option for jobs is very is something that we're going to be working on, bringing labor and other stakeholders to the table to figure out, you know, sort of what this looks like. Totally. That's amazing. All, all so important. I mean, even just, you know, going back to kind of what you were saying in the beginning. I mean, we had, as we record this today, we released an episode with Emery de Torres, who works in the Bronx as well, and was just talking, we were talking about just all the intersections. Shout out to Emerita. Yes. So we were talking about just all that intersections of how all these issues that we kind of talk about on a federal level, they all come down and weigh down on these communities like the Bronx, from literally climate change to healthcare to education to economic issues to literally everything comes down just like a ton of bricks on these communities. So there's so much work to be done and that's amazing. Like you're focusing on all of these very, very important issues and that platform is incredible. But moving forward, we're going into our I have a stupid question segment. We do want to talk about in this segment, sex work, very taboo kind of conversation in our society today. And I think it needs to be talked about more and more. And so I'm excited to cover this topic. So to start, what is sex work and how is this defined by law? I don't know that there's a, um, I'm sure there's a, a, in the law, there's a penal code that explains it that probably uses some really violent word, but I don't think that there's a universal definition of it. I think that it's, you know, sex workers are adults who receive money or goods in exchange for consensual sexual services. And then in terms of sex work, a lot of times we talk about, okay, it's criminalized. It's, it needs to be decriminalized. There's a lot of discussion around what to do with it and policy sort of coming into play. But in this current state, how is sex work criminalized? I think that it's important to note that, you know, sex workers sell sexual services to earn a living, right? In many cases to survive. The vast majority of sex workers engage in sex work because it's the best option that they have. 
And when we talk about the decriminalization of it, sex workers tend to report, you know, high levels of violence and harassment in connection with their line of work. And that comes from both their clients and from police. And the, the criminalization of it, you know, it makes it difficult for sex workers to report when something happens to them, when they're physically uh, abused, right? Because then they become vulnerable to incarceration and further abuse. And this perpetuates the stigma and, and violence and which further endangers sex workers and their health and their safety. And so there is a growing debate about decriminalizing sex work which just kind of means the removal of the criminal and the administrative penalties that apply to sex work and, and creating an environment for sex workers to have health and safety, sort of like, you know, I guess decriminalizing marijuana, you know, not arresting people, not giving them a rap sheet or a record of arrest. And I think it's super important because it's necessary to realize that sex workers have human rights and that they are human beings, and that at the end of the day, sex work is work. It's about liberation. It's about taking ownership of your body. It's about, it's a decision between two consensual adults. You know, we're not talking about sex trafficking, which is an entirely different thing, but it's, you know, it's, we sell sex all the time, right? When we listen to music, pop culture, when we listen to the Megan Thee Stallions of the world and the Nicki Minaj's, and we see Victoria's Secret models walking the runway and in their lingerie, you know, all of this in, in my eyes is a version of some sort of sex work of the people who express their bodies. And it's not just women, it goes across the gender spectrum but taking ownership of who you are and feeling liberated. Yeah. And I mean, like porn, massive industry that's literally selling sex. Oh, yeah. And that's perfectly legal, right? Yeah, exactly. Regulated. That's that's legalizing sex work right there in and of itself. The, but the criminalization of sex work sort of drives it underground. And that's where it tends to become more dangerous. So yeah, these are very, as you've mentioned at the outset, very taboo and, and deep conversations, but conversations that are important and, and that need to happen. Yeah. And like we've talked about the decriminalization of it and the like kind of legal policy side of it, but how do we shift the narrative in our culture and start having real conversations about sex work and honestly just kind of about I don't know, sexual liberation in general for everyone? Well, I'm not sure that that will happen in our generation. You know, we live in, in, a, in a world that is dominated by, we live in a sexist, misogynistic, patriarchal world. And that's the reality of it. And I don't know that we can break down those systems of oppression as quickly as we all would like to. I think the first step is to understand that sex work is work. And I think that decriminalizing sex work is very important towards achieving that goal. But I do think that there's hope. We, we see more and more women being more comfortable and confident with their bodies and taking ownership of their bodies and not being afraid to do what it is that they want to do. So we're on, our, we're on the way there, but... You know, if you're somebody that's closed-minded, that's narrow-minded, you know, you're going to, you're always going to think that sex work is immoral or wrong 
You're always just like you would always think that having a child out of wedlock would be. These are all sort of things that, as more and more generations, as we as we move further into the newer generations, continue to come, the taboos sort of lessen more and more. Definitely, I think that time spectrum too is like such an underrated thing. People's emotions, people's feelings on things, people's learned behaviors, fortunately, like take longer to undo and to unlearn, and it becomes you know, sort of a lifetime of work, which I think is really important for everyone to do and to understand and move through. But to your point, I'm really curious to see what change happens over the course of our generation and then, you know, where this all lands eventually. Look, there is a bill in the New York State Senate that would decriminalize sex work. 10 years ago, we would have never imagined that someone would even craft a piece of legislation like that the same way we would have not imagined that New York is on the verge of legalizing recreational marijuana. And so with each new generation, we we move closer and closer towards a more equitable and open society. Yeah, totally. Well, moving on, we want to start, you know, cover and dive deeper into this topic of public higher education that we've kind of scratched the surface on. But to start you're a graduate of John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And so can you tell us just like a little bit first about what that experience has done for you and what it's kind of inspired and enabled in, in you and also like where you're kind of taking this candidacy and the work that you do? You know, CUNY, the City University of New York saved my life. I was a former sex worker. I transitioned at 15 years old in high school. That was 15 years ago. And at that time, trans women of color didn't have role models to look up to. All of us, everywhere you looked, all of our friends were engaged in the same line of work. And so naturally we followed in each other's footsteps because we thought that was what we were supposed to be doing. There was no health insurance that would cover gender affirming surgeries at the time. It was also perfectly legal to fire people because of their gender identity in the state of New York and in many other states in the United States. And so again, it goes back to the point is that many people, the vast majority are engaged or have engaged in sex work because it was the only option or the best option they had at the time. But going back to um, CUNY, when I decided that I was privileged enough to leave the sex working industry and change my life and get and go back to school and, and get a, a job and, and an education or a regular nine to five job. It was a really hard transition for me, but I knew that there was more out there for me. And I knew that, you know, God had other plans for me and that I, there were other dreams and goals that I wanted to achieve. And enrolling in our public education system is what enabled me to do that right? It literally saved my life. It changed the course of my life. So many resources and doors opened for me when I re-enrolled in college as a continuing or returning student. And I met so many incredible people, so many people who at that moment I wasn't out, but so many people who I, I met at college who are now part of my campaign or who are volunteering on my campaign or who have, you know, treated me with love and respect and acceptance. I met a really incredible group of young activists who are really now on the front lines. We had a summer of protests that's still going on in New York City, but really took off after the killing of George Floyd 
And it was those young people that I met at CUNY that were on the front lines that had formed their own grassroots organizations that were calling for justice, for racial justice, for police accountability. And so the best decision I ever made was to go back to school and get my education, not for the credential itself, but because of the opportunities, the people I met, the connections that I made, the networking opportunities. And all of that came from CUNY. Especially a community. I feel like that is such an underrated element of the school itself and being able to have that. And I know part of that for and for the past has been that the school has been tuition free. It's no longer the case. So controversy over that, of course. But can you explain sort of just like how that's an issue and why it needs to change? So when CUNY first started in the late 60s, up until I think the mid 70s, there were only a a couple of campuses and it was it was free. It was, you know, the People's University and anyone could go and get a college education for free. Then CUNY started, I think CUNY started, they eliminated their screening process and a lot more black and brown students started to um, be able to enroll in CUNY. We were also dealing with another sort of explanation of this, depending on who you speak to, is that the tuition was imposed right around the time of the the mid-1970s when, the, when New York City was um, experiencing a financial crisis and where we, our, our, our city budget was taken sort of control over by this financial control board by the state. And, you know, we were dealing with this fearful politics of austerity and the state was telling us that, you know, you can't just give away free public higher education to anyone because it costs too much money. And if you want to be able to have long-term borrowing power, if you want to be seen as this responsible municipality, then you have to make budget cuts and, and you have to make the decision to impose tuition. And that was right around the time where Black and Brown students were really able to enroll in CUNY. And so that is, that's sort of what happened in, in a nutshell. And ever since there's been tuition, you know, a large percentage of the students at CUNY do go, are covered by state tuition assistance program and by federal Pell Grants, but there's a sizable population that are not covered by that. And, you know, as it relates to my story, I was a returning student. I had done a year of college right after high school when I was about 18, and then I had dropped out And I didn't go back until years later. And when I had gone back, I was no longer eligible for the same financial aid that I was when I was a freshman. And so there's that issue, you know, incarcerated students or or students that are formerly incarcerated don't have access to the same financial aid programs, part-time students, students that are working parents or have to take care of a sibling or, or a parent tend to have issues with getting the same amounts of financial aid packages. And and someone like, you know, me had to take out a student loan to to finish my my education. And I'm still paying that off. And my, but mine's is only a drop in the bucket compared to what some what other folks, international students, graduate students have a difficult time getting financial aid packages. 
and the college has, you know, the idea of college has sort of become this money-making business. And, you know, it's really pushing a lot of people to sort of reconsider whether they want to put themselves in a situation where they no longer can afford to buy their own first home because they're paying off student loan debt. I mean, there are so many aspects and layers to it as well, but tuition and student debt have become not just in New York, but across the country, major issues. So while these two elements are on the rise, so has the need for a college education, like we've talked about, like to even enter the job market. So what solutions can be implemented to level the field and either make it easier to stay afloat and be successful without a degree or to come out of a college debt-free? One solution is we move away from the idea that um, a college degree is what qualifies you for a certain job. I know brilliant people who don't have a college education. The, the former council member of the seat I'm running for, who's now a congressman, never went to college, or he dropped out of college rather, and is incredibly witty and, and smart and articulate. A very impressive man. So that's definitely one, one way. And in a community like mine, that's very appealing to me because I know what happens when people are looked at or stigmatized because they don't have, their resume doesn't say that they have a college degree. And I, I see the impacts of that. The other thing is, if you want to save the economy, right? We know that student loan debt has reached a trillion, upwards of a, a trillion dollars, the highest amount of any sort of debt, more than credit cards, I think, and, and perhaps even mortgage loans. And it is really, really hurting the uh, futures of many of, our, of the young generation. If you want to sustain the economy, the best thing you can do is cancel student loan debt. All of that money that's going towards paying off debt will now be able to be put back into the economy. We know that when people have money to spend, they spend it in their neighborhoods. It goes towards small businesses. There's so much gains and returns to get from not only making sure that we make CUNY free so that more people can have access to a college degree and have access to good paying jobs with higher tax bases, which funds a lot of the public institutions, but putting money back into the hands of people is always a good idea because what happens is they spend it and it goes back into the economy and it goes through the cycle. I'm excited. I think that something will finally happen with student loan forgiveness under a Biden administration with a Bernie Sanders as a chair of the budget committee. How exciting is that? Definitely some silver lining of this last week. Was that news? Super exciting. Right. And I feel like that just got so thrown under the, the rug. Like I really, I dug for that news. Like that was not a headline. I was not seeing it on TV. I think I saw it on TikTok first. Of all places, it would be on TikTok. I mean, look, there's, there was an insurrection, a riot happening on our nation's capital. So that, that took the headlines. Our, the president was impeached for the second time, the first in U.S. history. So you know, there are a lot of other more sensationalized headlines to be put out there. It's true. We're, we're a little busy. Can't keep up. But with that, we will kind of hop into our next topic, which is talking about healthcare. So in case you know, like we didn't know our healthcare system, the U.S. was highly strained and essentially like under attack. The pandemic has like only worsened or enhanced the deficit. So 
Of course, some of the barriers healthcare-wise move beyond insurance, but also to access. So we want to talk about some of these barriers specifically and some of the ones that aren't given enough attention. What about transportation? What about long-term care? Can you give a little bit of light as to some of the other healthcare barriers that your community faces? Yeah. I mean, look, there are certain parts of the Bronx that are transportation deserts. And when you have low-income communities of color who cannot easily access a hospital or a community health center, then it's probably going to make them not want to go in the first place. So probably just try and see if they can wait it out or if they can just avoid going, see if it just whatever health issue they may be dealing with will just sort of pass by, which is not a good idea, right? Can make the situation worse. The other aspect of transportation is the impacts it has on, on our environment, depending on what we're talking about and how that exacerbates health inequities particularly in communities like mine. In my community, we have something called the Cross Bronx Expressway, which is where all of the trucks with their diesel gas drive and, and there's all sorts of air particles that get lead into the air. And there are all sorts of residential buildings right on top of that expressway where people are breathing that in. And that has caused many people to have asthma. And we know that COVID-19 thrives with respiratory illnesses, sort of one of the reasons why you were twice as likely to die from COVID-19 if you were in the Bronx and you were living in another borough. But overall, you know, healthcare, in my opinion, should be a human right. I think that one of the most moral and political states of our country is that, like with most things, we have made healthcare this very lucrative business, where if you don't have enough money. You cannot afford adequate um, health insurance. You either have to be very, very, very poor to get covered under some um, sort of program like Medicaid, or you have to be very, you have to be a senior citizen to be qualified for Medicare. But for the working class, the immigrant population, middle-class people, they're the people who suffer the most when it comes to having access to high quality, affordable health care. The state has a bill called the New York Health Act, which if passed and signed into law, would provide universal health care for everyone. Everyone on the same le uh, level playing field, everyone, no matter whether you're rich or you're poor, will have access to the same quality health care. And it's actually far more cost effective and economical than the system that we have um, with the private health insurance industry. And I think we're long past the time where we have to put people over profits. And in a, in, in a time where we're experiencing a global health pandemic, there has never been a better time to really make sure that we have universal health care. And the perfect place to have that would be to pass Medicare for all on the federal level to even the playing field for every American and everyone in this country. Yeah, please. But the other topic under this umbrella is talking about immigrant communities who also face barriers in regards to healthcare. So can you illuminate you know, some of the barriers that they face and shed light on like how those barriers can be solved by policy or what kind of solutions can chip away at, at those problems? If we look at healthcare as a human right, then it should be for every human being regardless of their immigration status. And that's the ultimate goal. 
And I think, I believe that we can get there. We have to continue fighting to get to that place. But our immigrant population always gets um, the short end of the stick. The immigrant population, they tend to be frontline essential workers. They tend to do the most dangerous jobs. They tend to suffer from wage theft. They tend to suffer from you know, not having access to minimum wage, not having access to paid sick leave. I would argue that they, the immigrant population in New York City probably had disproportionately higher rates of COVID-19 because they were out there doing the work, helping the city stay afloat, while many of us were fortunate and privileged enough to apply for unemployment or grants and stay home or live off of our savings. They weren't able to do that. And so when the city was deserted, at the height of the pandemic, immigrants were still out there delivering our food. They were still out there doing uh, the work that, that, that they do, which is mostly the essential work. They also had no access to federal relief. They had access to no state relief. They're what we call excluded workers. They are some of the most heroic people who really get by on nothing. And, you know, they deserve more than, than what we're giving them. And again, I, you know, I can't wait until we actually elect a president and a governor and a mayor who understand that healthcare is a human right, just like housing is a human right, just like education is a human right. What we need is to get back to the days of where we were close to achieving an economic bill of rights under a Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration. We didn't get there, but that would have transformed so many people's lives in such a meaningful um, and impactful way. If we as, as America would understand that healthcare should not be a business and that we should put people over profits. And the only way um, in terms of housing that we're going to eliminate one of the worst homelessness crises in the country in the state of New York, we have 90,000 people that are living in, in shelters, up to two or 3,000 living on the streets of New York City, is we have to understand that housing is a right and that, when, and that housing is healthcare. Totally. I mean, just the common theme here is just how in this country we really put money over everything and everyone. It's time for it to change. I mean, from education to healthcare to everything. And that's the effects of, of capitalism, right? You know, capitalism tends to benefit those who have access to capital. It's a very controversial topic because people can't imagine any other thing, what other system. But these are the effects of capitalism when you when you really wind it down. Totally. Well, I think we covered all of our topics here with you today. I mean, I'm sure we can go on for hours about all of these topics, but we appreciate you coming on so much. And we're definitely going to keep an eye on your campaign and your election and wishing you all the luck and can't wait to see what happens there. And before you go, we do just want to give you one moment to be able to shout out your platforms. So where can our listeners find you? Social media, website, the whole biz. Yeah, so on Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at Elisa Crespo NYC. And my Facebook is at Elisa Crespo NYC number one. And my website is alisacrespo.com. Sign up, volunteer, donate. We need the help. This is a real grassroots people-powered movement. And we are upending the status quo in New York City. And we are going to make sure that we create a city that works for all of us. Okay. 
Newsflash, newsflash, are you ready for it? Let me know, what's up? Okay, so I found a new favorite podcast, besides ours, of course, like I don't wanna be too biased, so I gotta throw that one to the side, but this podcast is absolutely bomb. Are you ready? Like, do you wanna know what it is? What is it? Okay, so it's perfectly timed, adds a little spice to 2021. It's a sex podcast and could not be more perfect because this week, what are we celebrating? Roe v. Wade. Yeah, happy anniversary. Like, I don't know where to send the flowers, but we're working on it. 48 years of women being able to own their bodies. So what better podcast to listen to in celebration of that than Honey Do Me? Honey Do Me is a podcast dedicated to helping you have great sex, feel good in your body, and love yourself. Hosts Emma and Cass are not experts, in fact, they're total amateurs, but they know that they are not the only ones with questions, insecurities, and a desire to grow. So their guests are where they turn to receive the answers we've all been craving, like how to feel good in your body and love yourself. And every episode aims to help you feel confident, connected, and normal, because yes, what you're going through is normal, literally normal in all caps and bold, thank you. There's so much we are not taught as women in school about our bodies and how they work, right? So if you're ready for some actionable advice, radical honesty, and a splash of oversharing, which might be one of our favorite things, head over to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to Honey Do Me and tune in every Wednesday best day of the week. You can also find them on Honey Do Me Podcast on Instagram and at honeydoomepodcast.com. Check them out, ladies. Let's get into our top stories of the week. We have a few doozies here, but basically McConnell, Mitch McConnell, my boy, you know, my boy, Mitch McConnell, um, and Chuck Schumer, who Mitch McConnell is the Senate Republican, he's no longer the majority leader, but, and Chuck Schumer, who is the Democratic leader in the Senate, they closed in on a power sharing agreement in an evenly divided Senate. So if you remember, those two runoff elections in Georgia ended up tying the Senate 50-50, 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats in the Senate. When it becomes time, the tying vote will come down to Kamala Harris, who is going to be our new vice president, who will come into the Senate and be the tie-breaking vote on different legislation that comes through. So basically, the top two Senate leaders are nearing a power-sharing agreement to hash out how the evenly divided chamber will operate. So with Democrats in charge of setting the schedule, but both parties are likely to hold an equal number of seats on Senate committees. And so the negotiations between Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell have been built largely around how the Senate operated last time the body was um, split 50-50. So that was when George W. Bush initially became president in 2001. There was a 50-50 split. So the final details are still being sorted out between the two leaders. And they were expected to meet Tuesday to discuss these issues. So similar to those rules set in January 2001, Schumer and McConnell aides are discussing allowing bills and nominations to advance to the Senate floor, even if they're tied during committee votes. So that's something that could be common, given that like each party is expected to have the same number of seats on committee. So we'll take a quick stupid question break, because like, Lord knows in civics class, when they were like teaching us to like, how a bill becomes a law song. It was annoying and still confusing at the end of the day, right? So how do committees in the Senate work? Let's just do a quick little refresher. But like that song, if they wanted us to remember it, don't you think they would have just like put it to like, I don't know, like a Kanye beat 
or something. That was just some junk. Right. So how do committees in the Senate work? So committees help to organize the most important work of Congress, considering like shaping and passing laws to govern the entire nation. So 8,000 or so bills come to committee annually, and then only like 10% of those bills actually make it out of committee and then get considered onto the floor. So again, if you remember how the bill song goes i'm not gonna sing it but maybe you can go check it out on youtube or something if you're like really missing it i actually really don't even know it (laughs) so step one the bill is drafted step two the bill is introduced step three the bill goes to committee and then step four subcommittee reviews the bill step five committees like mark up and like amend the bill and change things about the bill step six the full chamber votes on the bill and then step seven referral of the bill goes to the other chamber so if it's in the senate it goes to the house if it's in the house it goes to the senate step eight the bill goes to the president to sign it and make it into law we there it is so basically to go back to the story Democrats will hold the chairmanships of the committee, so each committee has, like, a chairman, and so they have the power to set the agenda when going over these bills and kind of how those committees function, and Chuck Schumer will be granted the title of majority leader since Vice President-elect Kamala Harris will cast tie-breaking votes on the floor, technically giving the Democrats the power in the Senate. So the full chamber still has to ratify all these procedures, but that is expected to occur once Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell have finalized their agreement. So it's interesting. I feel like this is more just normal political news, possibly, that I feel like is very foreign these days. So yeah, I don't know. I just Here we are transitioning, and today's a big day, Inauguration Day. And this is also a big step of, you know, coming into this new Senate. Yeah, it's like, honestly, it's wild. It's so tame. Like, it seems so cordial. It doesn't seem like there's like any blood that's going to be shed over this situation. Senate Republican leader, again, like I said, Cockblock McConnell. Oh, fine. Mitch McConnell. I'm so going to get us in trouble at some point. Okay, open the Senate yesterday saying that the pro-Trump mob that's from the Capitol and <laughs> terrorists were fed lies by the president and others in the deadly riot in attempts to overturn Democrat Joe Biden's election. McConnell's remarks are his most severe and public rebuke of outgoing President Donald Trump. The Republican leader in this vowed a safe and successful inauguration of Biden today at the Capitol, which is under extremely tight security. Literally just like watch TikTok for like people in DC or honestly, like anyone that's like at GW, if you have any friends at GW, like send them a text and be like, are you good? Because it's insane. Anyways, back to what I was saying, the mob. So the mob was fed lies is basically the quote that'll go down in history, short, sweet, and to the point. That's what McConnell said. He also said that they're provoked by the president, other powerful people. They tried to use fear and violence to stop a specific proceeding, huh, love proceedings, of the first branch of the federal government, which they did not like. But we just like, can we just take a minute to maybe break that quote down a little bit because I just thought it was very important to add, especially to hear Mitch McConnell say that the mob was fed lies and they were provoked by the president and other powerful people. Mitch McConnell, are you talking about yourself? Because, sweetie, you were one of those people who was claiming election fraud for a long time and was not conceding. So what? what's up with that? I mean... 
maybe that was his way of being like, I take responsibility. But he couldn't, I guess, say it just straight up. But, you know, Mitch McConnell is taking strides to make amends with me. And I appreciate the efforts. But I'm going to need a little bit more from him because he knows what he did. Yeah, I don't think you guys are getting back together anytime soon. But anyways, Trump's last full day in office was yesterday. So at the same time as this was like a celebration, last full day, it was also Senator's first day back since the deadly siege. So quite the time to transition as the Senate presses ahead on whose impeachment trial? Oh, Trump's impeachment trial and starts confirmation hearings on President-elect Joe Biden's cabinet. So lots going on here. Since being back in town, Republican senators face even more than before, a daunting choice of whether to convict Trump of inciting this insurrection. So the first impeachment trial of a president no longer in office, making its mark, and a break with the defeated president who continues to hold great sway over the party, whose future is uncertain. Like all of that is happening. So yikes. Senators are also being asked to start confirming Biden's cabinet nominees and consider passage of a sweeping new $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill. So there is lots, lots going on here. They're busy. They're busy. And as they should be, because we are in a global pandemic. We also just had an unprecedented siege on our capital. We have a president who refused to concede, who just got impeached for the second time, the first ever in history. So there's a lot going on in D.C. And, you know, to kind of touch on the impeachment moment, too, I think there might be some confusion about, like, okay, what's next? Like, what happened after he got impeached? Right now, there um, is a possibility that, you know, it gets to the Senate maybe in a few weeks because, again, they have to simultaneously work on approving Biden's cabinet in the Senate, his 100 days. So there's a lot going on, and an impeachment trial is one of those things, and so they have to kind of, like, figure out when to do that. But right now it's up in the air. There's not, I don't think, a clear plan as to when the impeachment in the Senate will happen, but stay tuned. We will definitely let you guys know when when shit goes down in that in that realm so but next you guys this story really made my day i feel so blessed to like bring it to you guys today because it just hopefully will warm your heart and just feel like you're really almost to that light at the end of the tunnel you know so we're talking about joe biden's very hefty to-do list when he enters office today and so joe biden has given himself an imposing to-do list for his earliest days as president and as well as many you know promises to keep over the longer haul but overshadowing everything at the very start is biden's effort to win congressional approval of a 1.9 trillion dollar plan to combat the coronavirus and you know the economic impacts that it has caused so we also know climate change immigration health care and more will also be competing for attention and money and so biden has laid out very ambitious, but detailed set of plans and promises across like a wide range of different public policy initiatives. So here is Biden's plan for, yes, the next three days, including today, Wednesday. So there are big things happening today post-inauguration. He is getting right to work. And so Wednesday, after the inauguration, mostly by executive action, declaration that the U.S. is rejoining Paris Climate Accord, like hallelujah like just beautiful miracles miracles literally miracle shit 
Declaration that the U.S. is rejoining the World Health Organization. Ethical standards for his administration and order prohibiting interference in the operation of the Justice Department from other parts of the government. That sounds really basic, but like that's actually something that was lacking in a Trump administration. The start of a process to restore 100 public health and environmental roles that the Obama administration created and that President Donald Trump eliminated or weakened. The start of a process to rejoin the deal restraining Iran's nuclear program in exchange for sanctions relief. An executive action to end travel restrictions on people from a variety of Muslim-majority countries. Executive action to protect from deportation for people who came into the country illegally as children. Executive action to make masks mandatory on federal property and when traveling out of state, others will be asked to wear masks for 100 days. Steps to extend pandemic-era restrictions on evictions and foreclosures. Amen. Legislation to go to Congress proposing to repeal liability protections for gun manufacturers and tightening some other aspects of gun control. That's all on t- for today. That's Wednesday. That's Biden's plan for today of what he wants to get done. Incredible. Casual. Casual. So that was just Wednesday, but Thursday, he is planning an executive action, laying out new steps to expand virus testing, protect workers, and set new public health standards. And then on Friday, a directive to agencies to take unspecified immediate action to deliver economic relief from the pandemic. So you guys, this week, we have so much to look forward to as far as policy and what this new administration is going to do that we have been lacking for four years so super exciting stuff but to wrap up you know enjoy inauguration day please again stay safe like stay inside don't go places there's heightened security literally all across the country there are rumors of more violence of you know civil wars and things like that so just you know do your part stay at home enjoy you know this big day in history we have our first ever female vice president it's a huge day shout out oakland and you know just enjoy stay safe but sam just a big moment here because this is the final episode with trump as our president crazy crazy i literally like what on earth i honestly might not sleep tonight yeah thanks for listening don't forget to subscribe rate review and as always we'll be talking to you guys next wednesday Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.